Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. From unexpected blizzards and closed roads in the winter, which some of you heard about, stranded me at my parents' house five minutes away from my in-laws and my family because every single road in the county closed a couple weekends ago and I was just stuck there. Didn't know if I'd make it back in time. Blizzards come out of nowhere and the roads are all closed. In the other three seasons, if you want to count it as such, we get heavy wind and lightning storms, sometimes accompanied by a tornado warning if the day is right. And with such quick and violent atmospheric changes, oftentimes seemingly popping up out of nowhere with no regard for what the meteorologists predicted, you have little but no little choice but to learn to take the storms at least somewhat seriously when you live in that area. So growing up, we always kept an extra set of warm clothes in the car in the winter. We never let the gas get below a certain point. We'd always know where the candles and the flashlights were in case the power went out again. And we'd always have a well-stocked pantry and freezer in case the roads closed, as they often do, for multiple days at a time, and you can't get to the grocery store. Yet despite all the potential reasons to fear, if you want to call it that, and the required disaster preparedness, which is actually increased and exacerbated by the fact that the second largest nuclear plant in the world is five minutes down the road, but that's another whole discussion. Despite the respect that the locals have for the sheer unpredictable devastation of the weather, ask almost anyone who lives there and they will tell you that one of the most beautiful, wonderful, awe-inspiring things that you can see is to be on the water's edge as a storm builds over the lake and works its way in towards the shore. There's something about watching the clouds billow and darken, the waves picking up in size and intensity, the raw power of the lightning as it almost seems to crackle across the surface of the water. There's something about all that that reminds you of just how puny and powerless you really are, how majestic the created world can be. Well, it would seem that King David may have had similar thoughts because the psalm we're going to look at today includes imagery of a violent storm to describe the breadth of glory and strength found in our God. And it presents it as the fuel and inspiration for our worship. I thought on a day like today that it's so celebratory and praise-filled as a brother in Christ publicly declares his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, I thought it wouldn't hurt for us to hear some reminders of just how great and deserving of worship our God truly is. So I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Psalms, chapter 29. Psalm chapter 29. And as I often like to do up here, we're going to start by reading through the whole psalm, and then we're going to come back and take it in smaller pieces. And specifically, what we're going to see today in David's words is a what, a why, and a now what. We're going to see what does God deserve? Why does God deserve it? And now what do we do about it? So starting in verse 1, 
of Psalm chapter 29. It says this. Ascribe to the Lord, sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy attire. The voice of the Lord is on the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon in pieces. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God indeed. <laughs> this psalm opens with a bit of an interesting word that we don't use very often, perhaps, in our common English. Ascribe. Your translation may say give, or perhaps even acknowledge. It's sort of the idea of giving someone what they are due. It's acknowledging how much you owe them. Assigning a set of values to them. Which is why I call it interesting, given that God is God, and there's nothing that we can give him that he needs. Even though in many ways we might say that we owe him everything that we possibly have to give. Look back at verse 1 with me. Ascribe to the Lord, sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. How do we give God glory and strength when his glory and strength are already limitless? Well, the short answer and the simple one, I guess, is that we don't. <laughs> but we can reverently acknowledge that he has all glory and strength. And that in turn, he deserves any glory and strength that we might have to offer. I have a friend who, um, let's just say he has some money and he isn't afraid to spend it. It makes him a really good friend to have around Christmas and birthdays because he gives really good presents, really good gifts. But whether it's Christmas or a birthday or out of the blue for no reason, wouldn't you believe it, buying a gift for him is actually a nightmare. It's really difficult to do because he's the kind of guy that if he wants something, he just buys it for himself. So how do you ever get him something in return? Well, the result is that I end up having to put in a lot more time and thought and care and effort and intention into what I get him. And in, in return, he also does a really good job at showing just how much he appreciates the gift that I give him, even when in a dollar-for-dollar dollar comparison, there is no comparison. It's nowhere close to what he spent on me. It's maybe a poor illustration, but that's sort of the picture that I have here when it comes to God. God has given us more than we could ever ask for or imagine. 
In fact, he paid the heftiest price of all in giving his son to die on our behalf so we can spend eternity with him. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to repay him or to match the value of the gifts that he has given us and will continue to give us. But what he wants is our thought, care, and intention. He wants our time and our effort. He wants our actions, our prayer, our praise and worship. It's not because he needs it or that he's somehow not sufficient without it. It's not because it somehow repays our debt or earns his favor or love or makes us even in any way, shape or form. But it's simply because he is the almighty God and he deserves it. Verse 2 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And in this case, his name is really a stand-in for his entire being. It's his character, his identity, who he is as God. It's saying he deserves an ascription of all glory simply because of who he is. In the second half of the verse, the verb changes, and still an imperative, it's still a command, but after this threefold ascribe, we have the word worship. And notice what it attaches to it. It says, worship the Lord in holy attire. To me, this seems like a call to worshiping God the way he deserves and demands to be worshiped. It's taking our worship seriously and again, acknowledging who we are in comparison with the one that we are worshiping. It's not necessarily referring to our actual clothing. And incidentally, I'm pretty sure my wife recently threw out some of my clothing because it was a little too holy. <laughs> Been wanting to slip that one in for a while. <laughs> no, it's a call to worshiping God the way he deserves to be worshipped, taking seriously the God that we are worshiping. It's more of a heart posture. It's how we present ourselves to God in worship. I think of the book of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on or clothe yourselves with, some translations say, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you must also do. It says, put on, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, all these things. So when we approach the strong and glorious God, we ought to clothe ourselves or wrap ourselves in holiness, in holy attire. Again, this is perhaps complicated by the fact that, I don't know about you, I'm not holy. <laughs> I'm not perfect, especially in comparison with God. And yet that is the call all throughout scripture. Be holy because I am holy, God says. We see it in 1 Peter. We see it in Leviticus. We see it again in 1 Peter as he quotes Leviticus. But I like what Paul has to say. Again, Paul, but this time in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do we do this? Well, it's by the mercies of God that we present ourselves to him as a spiritual service of worship. The reality is, is that God is perfect and we are not. 
<laughs> but that doesn't let us off the hook. And it's something we ought to be reminded of time and time again as we turn to worship him with our words and our deeds, our prayers, our songs, and really our life. Take our time of corporate worship, for instance, this time where we gather on the Lord's Day to sing and to pray and to take communion and to learn from God's word together. One thing I've been reflecting on this week is how often during a Sunday morning service do I actually personally take the time to think about how glorious and how strong and how holy and deserving of worship God truly is? Or are there times when I just, if I'm being honest, sing along because that's what we do? Or how about we take it back one question? Why do we do what we do here on Sunday morning? Why do we sing? Why do we stand while we sing? Why do we bow our heads and close our eyes when we pray? Why is there someone leading us in prayer and not just private prayer time? Why is there silence after communion? Why is the baptism near the beginning? These are all things that we do, choices that the church leadership has made with intention, with purpose and reason, and yet for those of us who have been around this church or any church for a while, it can be easy at times to take it all for granted, to just go through the motions, to sing the words because that's what we do and not truly reflect on what it is we're actually saying and singing to bow in prayer while our mind wanders from what the person is actually praying, to think more about the flavor of the grape juice and that piece of wafer stuck in our tooth than the actual meaning behind the bread and the cup. But for anyone who hasn't been here for a long time, anyone who's new to church, maybe just starting out at church for the first time, the things that we do here on a Sunday are pretty weird. Like objectively, noticeably weird in comparison to the world. You don't just start singing with people and standing to sing in the middle of the world except for karaoke night. And even that's questionable. Taking little pieces of dry bread, taking juice together, representative of something. Publicly taking a bath in front of other people. It's weird if you don't understand it and if you're not used to it. If it's not what you're accustomed to. And yet here we come, week after week, to sing, to pray, to sing some more, to eat, drink, reflect, read, listen, and fellowship. Which, who even knows what that word means? Out of reverent acknowledgement of our Lord. We do it out of reverent acknowledgement for our Lord, as we are doing our best to worship him in the way that he deserves to be worshipped. To present ourselves as clothed in holiness, even when we're far from it. Because the Lord of glory and strength deserves our best. He deserves our time, our effort, our song, our life, our everything. Well, in the next section of verses, David goes into some vivid imagery, as you heard a moment ago, to explain just why God deserves our worship. And yes, we've already acknowledged he is deserving of our worship simply because of who he is. But here David also wants to flesh out that glory and strength in a little more detail. That he is deserving of our worship because of what he can do. The first thing I'm sure many of you noticed when we went through this passage a few minutes ago is just how much repetition there is. There's that phrase, the voice of the Lord. It's actually repeated seven times in these seven verses between verse 3 and verse 9. 
Now, the number seven stands out because it's all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout ancient Hebrew culture, and it's often thought of as the number of perfection or completion. And I'm not going to waste too much time this morning on theories of biblical numerology, but suffice it to say, it's important. And personally, when I read the voice of the Lord, and notice that it's referred to seven times, personally, my mind goes right to creation. That oh-so-important seven-day period. Six days where God spoke through his voice our world and everything we know into existence. And a seventh where he rested after all that he had done. Now, if that's not a story about the limitless glory and strength that God has, creation, from the vast expanse of the universe to the tiniest cell in our bodies, I don't know what is. But while God's voice in creation may draw us to a peace-filled gratitude or reverence as we think about the marvelous wonders of nature and all that God has made, there are many times in Scripture that it elicits another reaction. And David, I thought he was going to steal my, my passage this morning. We think of the book of Exodus before Moses went, before the calf was made, when the people of Israel heard God's voice from Mount Sinai. It says in Exodus 19 and 20, it says this, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the entire mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And all the people who were watching and hearing the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it all, they trembled, and they stood at a distance. They said to Moses, speak to us yourselves, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Some interesting imagery similar to the psalm today. The voice of the Lord was terrifying to the people as they bore witness to God's glorious power in a way that made evident just how unholy they were by comparison. It's not so different than the story of Adam and Eve, how they started out walking in the garden, talking with God, walking with God, and then immediately they are racked with fear and shame and cannot be in his presence after their sin. When we witness even just a glimmer of the breadth of God's glory and strength, it makes sense that we might experience wonder and reverence because he is a great and majestic God. But it also makes sense that we might experience, like the Israelites, fear and awe and trembling as we realize just how sinful and weak we are in comparison to a perfect, holy, powerful God. They're really two sides of the same coin, and both can be proper, worshipful responses to the Almighty. And again, if I'm being honest, sometimes I focus maybe a little too much on the beauty side and not enough on the fear side. Our sin is serious, 
And part of worshiping in holy attire, as David calls us to, is treating it with the seriousness it deserves as we face the God of glory and strength. So this morning, let's take what David intended and reflect on and acknowledge the sheer power of our God and just how far-reaching his glory is. Looking back through the text, not every single verse, but just bit by bit here. Verse 3, the second half, the God of glory thunders. It's evocative. Verse 4, the beginning, the voice of the Lord is powerful. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon in pieces. (laughs) Because apparently for David, just saying God's voice can snap some trees wasn't good enough. He picks some of the tallest and strongest and most well-known trees in the area and makes it clear that God can shatter them to pieces with his voice. Our modern westernized version might say something like, he shreds the redwoods of California like a wood chipper with his voice. That's kind of the picture here. Verse 6 might seem a bit strange when he talks about Lebanon and Syrian skipping like a calf, like a young wild ox. But contextually, these two places are two massive mountain peaks in the region. The imagery is of a God that is so powerful that his very voice can make the mountains bounce and skip around like a young wild calf. A voice that literally trembles the earth. Verse 8, again, he shakes the entire wilderness. And yet for all that expansive, what we might call chaotic, breadth of power, we also have illustration of a precise, channeled, exact strength and power. Verse 7, when it talks about dividing the flames of fire or dividing with flames of fire, it's an analogy for lightning, lightning that strikes with precision, like a blacksmith strikes a piece of metal on an anvil while shaping it. You got to be precise. It's not just randomly hammering. You're hammering with precision, like a lightning bolt doesn't just burst through the entirety of the room, but it strikes whatever is tallest or most conductive. Verse 9, in a metaphor that has caused many smarter than me to scratch their head in a bit of confusion, we have this picture of a voice that makes the deer give birth prematurely, almost like the idea that God's voice is shaking their very babies out of them with precision. It strips the forest bare of their greenery and their bark, not just tearing the forest to shreds, but delicately also ripping off, or maybe precisely is a better word, all that is on them. What we see in these verses is a power that is beautiful, like a storm coming in off a lake, and yet also demands to be acknowledged and taken seriously with respect. Now, with regards to God's glory, we can see from the picture that David paints that it's a far-reaching glory that spreads across the entirety of the land. These verses have a lot of movement within them. It starts in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is on the waters. The voice of the Lord is over many waters. Here we have the picture of a storm brewing over the water, perhaps, probably, in fact, the Mediterranean Sea forming out there. And then by verse 5, it is now moved onto dry land into the area of Lebanon with the mountains and its forests in the north. Then down by verse 8, it has moved down through the entirety of the land to Kadesh in the far south, 
the area where the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. Again, very evocative pictures of this storm sweeping and covering the entirety of the land, this glory of God covering. And then it ends in verse 9, back in the temple. And in his temple, everything says glory. Because, again, it seems as a reminder to me that in the midst of all this awe and splendor on display, the proper response to the power of God in this metaphorical storm is to worship him the way that he deserves and demands to be worshipped. And for the people that David was writing to, that was in the temple where God's glory, his Shekinah, dwelt on earth. So God's glory and his strength is far-reaching. It's expansive, covering the entirety of the land, but it ends with precision in the temple where God deserves to be worshipped. This whole section of vivid poetic imagery begs some important questions. Do I take seriously my worship of the God described in these passages? Do I tremble at his power and marvel at his glory? I remember as a kid being taught about how you can estimate how far away a storm is by counting out the time between when the lightning strikes and when you hear the thunder. Has anyone ever heard this before? Because light, of course, travels faster than sound. So when we were kids and a storm would be coming, the lightning would flash. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, four one thousand, five one thousand, boom! The crash of the thunder. You say, okay, I got up to five, so it's probably still a little ways away. But on those days where the lightning flashes and the crack sounds immediately, seemingly destroying a tree right outside your window, it sounds like it's right there. Well, it's time to take things seriously. Get in if you're outside. Don't be in an open field. Don't be by the trees. Stay away from the windows. Stop holding metal things. And if you're playing a golf game, stop. <laughs> It's time to take things seriously. And I think how easy is it for us to treat God like a storm that is far off and stays far off? A beauty to be gazed at in the distance who doesn't necessarily affect us. He might affect others, but he doesn't pose any real threat to how I choose to live my life here and now in the day to day. It's easy to treat him as far off in the distance. I wonder how quickly we'd change our tune if we heard God speak like the Israelites did. If we heard the voice that thunders. We've gone through the what and the why and the final two verses lead us to sort of a now what. Now what do we do about it all? What is the response to a God that is this powerful and this glorious? Well, he gives us two indications. Verse 10 the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. And for those who like to study the Bible, this verse is fascinating in that it's the only place in the Old Testament that this particular Hebrew word for flood is used apart from the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. It's the only time that this word is used. So clearly, David's using it with intention to remind us not of just any flood, but of the flood. In Genesis. We think also about who's writing this psalm. It's David, who is the earthly king at the time. 
So it seems to me like he's making a statement about the eternal reign of God as the true king. God sat enthroned ages before David at the time of the, of the flood as he passed judgment on sin and yet also delivered a remnant with whom he would covenant. God was also enthroned as David wrote these words in the midst of his own earthly kingship. And God would continue to be enthroned forever as the king, deserving of worship for all eternity. Now, this is just me theorizing a bit here, but I almost read a tone here of David sort of saying, people, don't worship me. Worship the one who will reign forever. My reign is temporary. Worship the one who will reign forever, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And what does that eternal king offer and promise? Well, it's in verse 11. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. The implication here, of course, is that his people don't currently have or are in need of strength and peace. And while David was writing with a specific group of people in mind, it doesn't take much for us to look around at this world and see that we are still, as God's people, in desperate need of strength and peace from our eternal king. And we await that day when our Lord will wipe away all evil and preserve his people forevermore. Well, so where does that leave us? Well, if the first section of verses instructed us to worship with reverence, and the second set demanded our awe, you might say that proper worship in these final two verses is an invitation to trust. To trust in the eternally enthroned God of promise. I looked at a number of different books and study resources in preparation for today, as I often do. And it was surprising that a number of the books on the Psalms had very little to say about this one in particular. But one thing that they all shared was the clear understanding that this Psalm, despite its perhaps dark and scary tone in the middle, is a hymn of praise. This is a call to worship. To worship God because of who he is. To worship God because of what he can do and to worship God for what he will one day do. To worship with reverence, with awe, and with trust. And I want to make clear as we finish up today that worship isn't just singing, although we're going to do that together in just a moment. We worship in prayer. We worship in our words, our actions, how we live our lives. We worship in everything that we say and do. And so before we, th- we sing together, I want to leave us with a practical way to worship God in these three areas, reverence, awe, and trust. Someday this week, or each day if you're feeling particularly spiritual, or like you want to challenge yourself a little bit, I want to invite you to do something simple, and take a moment and write down three things to worship and praise and thank God for. One in each of these categories. So number one, write down something about who God is that is deserving of worship. Something about his character, his identity, his greatness, his glory. Write down something about who God is that is deserving of praise and worship. Number two, write down something about what God can do. 
about his ability, his limitless power, his strength. And then number three, write down something deserving of praise for what God will do. His promises, the hope that we have in him. Pretty simple, something we can praise God for, worship and thank him for because of who he is, what he can do, and what he will one day do. Write down those three things and then just worship him. Worship him for them all. You can worship him in song, in prayer, in action, at your work, your recreation, with your family, whatever it is you're doing. Praise God for who he is, what he can do, and what he will one day do. As I said, we're going to end by singing together. And I picked a song today that I think fits this passage beautifully. The majority of the words are taken actually from a passage, not in the Psalms, but in Revelation, where John is referencing Christ. But as you'll see as you sing and hopefully pay attention to the words that we're singing this morning, David in the Psalms, John in Revelation, and in turn, us today, we are singing and praising and worshiping the same holy, glorious, powerful triune God. So let's pray to him and then sing together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.